Hello and welcome to the XXLA Architects Podcast, a show featuring Los Angeles's leading women in architecture and issues relevant to our profession. I'm your host, Audrey Sato, and today's guest is Kashani De Silva. Kashani has worked in the architecture and design industries for over 20 years in the project and major program management arena. Her current work as an executive advisor with the Executive Office of the Los Angeles County Development Authority focuses on homelessness and the affordable housing shortfall in Los Angeles. Kashani's work relating to housing innovation, sustainability, and the business of design have been published in Next City, Metropolis, and Design Intelligence. She has a Master's of Science in Major Program Management from the University of Oxford, England, an Executive Leadership Certification from Cornell, and a BARC from Woodbury University. She is also a board member of 10,000 Villages Pasadena, an entity working for social and economic justice for marginalized populations in the developing world. Kashani is a former president and board member of the Association for Women in Architecture and Design and leads the 5050 by 2020 Gender Equity Initiative. Before we begin this episode, I want to mention that there are two events coming up in connection with the 5050 by 2020 initiative, a celebration in Pasadena on Friday, March 27 through AWA plus D, as well as a session at the AIA convention coming up in May. Now, without further ado, here's our show. I've been really impressed that you've had such a diverse set of experiences um, from your educational background and your professional experiences running your own business, teaching, working at very well-respected firms. Um, can you talk more about some of the highlights or pivotal moments of your career and um, in particular mention why those are special to you? Sure. So getting my first job straight out of architecture school was a very long time ago. Um, and it was also at a time of recession. And I remember, you know, you're gearing up for your thesis, right? It's a two-year project and really nervous about what's out there. And then having the crit, the final jury, and people just walking through, and I got a job offer. So I was really kind of afraid and excited, and I took two months off and followed up on it, and I got hired at this firm, this small firm in the Valley. So that was definitely like, you know, wow, I managed to get a, a job, even if it was a very small firm. But a couple of those associates are still part of my professional life and my personal life, like they're my friends now. So that has really stuck through. From then on, I went to this boutique design firm that gave me the option to sort of travel a lot um, and really work with architects in other parts of the world, famous architects, and just see, because you were on the consultant side, right? You were not oh. on the architecture side. So I was visiting all these famous architects' offices and getting the exposure in terms of their how they practice, which was kind of eye-opening and really kind of satisfying. Um, but it was also a point where I, now looking back, feel that I veered away from architectural practice and getting my licensure because I was having fun and mm -hmm. enjoying that whole 
experience. So, um, so it's like, you know, a double-edged sword a little bit. What was the specialty or what was, what were it you was consulting? It was water feature design. Oh, cool. So this firm was a pioneer, um, like the music center, mm-hmm. fountains and the Bellagio city walk, all those fun, playful fountains, the water and cinema technologies, I think they're called looking at cutting edge technology, robotics and choreographed fountains and all that stuff, you know, sounds cheesy now, but <laughs> no, I mean, it was fun at the time. Yeah. And when people think about their trips to Vegas, for example, that Bellagio right, fountain exactly. is like a huge part of it. This is right. So yeah, like that was really cool. And then, of course, my last appointment um, with Foster and Partners, I would say that was a defining moment in my career. Um, It was on a whim. I had just moved back, actually, to the U.S. from being away. And then we're like, oh, like, maybe we should go back to London. And um, I just, on a whim, just Mm -hmm. looked at Foster and Partners. Like, (laughs) I could work there. I mean, what was I thinking? And I saw this advert just kind of written for me it was so bizarre i had a really pretty decent job at the time here again um in the water feature industry and a break away from that particular firm that i had helped found um with this architecture professor of mine who was then the design director at that other firm so anyway i had like you know flexible hours um senior level position it was it was good but i was not challenged it was kind of like I had hit a mark where I could do everything that I needed to do. It was a boutique firm again, you know, small. So I was looking for a challenge. And it's just like, oh, yeah, let's look at Foster and Partners, you know. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> and so there was this job description. I was like, what? What about it was specific, like, called out to you as being for you? Like, it was everything that was written was like, I can do this. And I can do this. And I've done this. And, yeah, I can do that. And, the, you know, you always have few things, few bullets in those descriptions that you don't know, right? Sure. And you can't do. And that's also a challenge that you should be able to push and stretch and all that. So anyway, I spoke to a couple of people and they were like, yeah, all you can do is just apply, you know. So I hadn't a CV. I hadn't done anything for a long time. This is like, yeah, like 10 plus years into my career. And then I had to do all of that and prep and asked a few friends for advice, like, yeah, just send it, you know. So it took me like six weeks. I actually called them, actually, and I spoke to the reception lady who I subsequently met, who's still there now and is a partner. And I said, is this job still open? You know, it's like six (laughs) weeks on, now I'm still like fiddling. Should I, should I not? And she said, well, if it's still showing up on the website, it should be. So I hit the send button. And a week later, I got a call, basically, um, to come for an interview. That's great. So I flew out and it was a day's worth of interviews, like, you know, lunch and whatnot. And then they gave me an offer and, you know, and I had to decide on the day of before I left. So that was that. So some of the pivotal moments. Wow. So what was that like working at a, you know, a prominent firm like Foster and Partners? And when you went into that position where you said, you know, you really could tick off Mm -hmm. all of the boxes. Did you feel like that was accurate or were were there places where you grew and you didn't expect to or things that, or was it, you know, what was your experience like? Nothing like I'd expected. (laughs) 
And yeah, I was like, yeah, I need a challenge. And boy, um, did I ask for it. So you have to be really careful of what you ask for. <laughs> um, but it, it was an amazing experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I grew so much. I learned so much. In terms of the work, yes, like I had a good depth of knowledge from having done this uh, with Jody and having sort of managed that firm and being sort of the key um, project director for the boutique firm. So all of that experience really helped. But in terms of the culture, in terms of, it's like a different universe, you know, I mean, they are renowned for what they do because they operate the way they do. So many of the times I felt like I was on Wall Street, you know, it was like a final every day because mm. it's deadline after deadline after deadline. Um, very large contracts. So some of them were like billions of dollars worth, so very high pressure. Yeah, I'm still in touch with them. Some of my friends, you know, I go and see them. It was not what I had anticipated, but at the same time, I just grew exponentially there and gave me the confidence really to sort of go out and do my own thing. That's really cool. Mm. So after you left there, did you come right away back to the U.S. or? No, <laughs> I went, uh, I'm originally from Sri Lanka. Uh -huh. So I went on holiday to Sri Lanka. I was offered this random job because of a childhood friend who lives in Canada, who's an author, was in Sri Lanka curating this international literature festival with like Nobel laureates coming and all this stuff. And they were looking for a, a director to run the program. So he was curating it. So And it was run by a British guy who was still doing it, actually, there, who lives there. And so I was like, yeah, I'll do this. Forget going back to the States. <laughs> <laughs> it was just for a year. But it was really nice because it was maybe 20-plus years since I'd actually lived in Sri Lanka again. So it was really good to connect back. So tell me then about how you came into your current role because it sounds really fascinating mm. i don't know much about fuse corp and it, it sounds like a really cool opportunity for an architect and someone who's like trained to think outside of the box and problem solve yeah so um i was you know doing my own thing uh very humble and doing some teaching doing many different things during those past few years and then i really actually when i was teaching really felt the need to plug into this housing and affordability and homeless space because our profession at the very sort of base of it, the foundation is about shelter. Mm -hmm. And there's like so many people who are unsheltered. And it was just playing on my heart a lot. And then um, I did this mid-professional, um, I took an MSc really, did a, did a master's on major programs and um for me, this was a major program. So a major program can be defined as anything that's like over a billion dollars, um, which was some of the projects actually that I was working on at Foster's, but um, can be transformational, impacts millions of lives, um, very complex, uh, tons of stakeholders. So all of these sort of boxes define a major program. And for me, this was a major program. We had just passed measures Triple H and H uh, and a billion our dollars were coming. And also they, these projects have to be long-term, like plus 10 years. So it fit into that category and the complexity of it was really resonating with me. And so um, some of my research was particularly done on, on housing. 
And I was trying to see like, how do you work the problem from inside and primarily government? And so actually Deborah Weintraub, who um, is an AWA Plus D member, um, I had met her a few times at many events. And this is why the AWA Plus D is such a, such a good place for women. Um, I approached her and said, you know, like, I'm really interested in this space and I'd like to work in public service for a while. So she introduced me to Fuse mm. because Fuse, there was a Fuse fellow at the city. Oh, okay. In her department. So she introduced me to him and we had a coffee and, um, you know, he said I definitely should apply. He'd taken a look at my resume and stuff like that. So Fuse was actually created to connect private sector folks with government so to help government handle some of their most challenging issues, mm-hmm. i.e. homelessness, i.e. sustainability, um, i.e. workforce development, um, recidivism and reentry populations, all of those sort of very complex issues to bring an outside lens and help them. So really being like a change agent, guiding them, helping them work through some of those issues. So that's, that was why that's the mission of FUSE. So yeah, so long story short, I applied and I applied for this particular job because it was with the housing authority at the time. Now we are the LACDA, which is LA County Development Authority went through a rebranding last year. And here I am. Wow. Just like that, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it was very intentional, extremely yeah. intentional. And so I feel very humbled, grateful to have been given this option. It's not easy. Yeah, it doesn't sound easy. I mean, you're one person tackling an issue like homelessness, I think must just seem like an endless problem with so many faces. (laughs) Right. You think it's complex, but when you're actually like working at it, and because I had done some research, I knew the complexity of it, but it's 10 times as complex as as one would think. You know, like anytime you are having a conversation because people know that I'm working in the space, they'll be like, yeah, but have, have you guys thought of this? And why are they not doing this? And yeah, it's, it's pretty daunting sometimes to think about it. Mm-hmm. Can you talk more about um, projects that you've been doing in in your time as a fellow? Sure. Um, so I was brought to look at housing and affordability in homes through sort of this holistic lens. And my analysis, sort of doing the mapping and all of that, um, there was basically two buckets. One is to prevent homelessness and then how do we create supply more affordably and faster. So those are the two big pieces. So on the prevention side, um, and also the agency's vision is to end generational poverty. And to do that um, is just, I mean, I I don't even have to say, but that that's like the moonshot, right? Yeah. I mean, that's like up there. So how do you then bring it down to earth to in real life terms. So um, a couple of initiatives that I kicked off last year was bringing, um, so we also are responsible for several public housing sites, this agency, Mm -hmm. bringing um, or partnering with the Youth Institute of Long Beach to one of our public housing sites and getting the youth um, exposure to STEAM curriculum, Mm -hmm. so through the media arts. They learn to do like graphic design, beat making, 
video making and 3D printing, things that hmm. they would not be usually exposed to within their public housing or public school systems. Mm-hmm. And the Youth Institute, which is attached to the YMCA, is just an amazing kind of model. So it, we managed to get 25 students on it as a summer pilot. And then we managed to find the funding and continue it throughout the year. So they are currently going doing a year-long program. Wow. And then um, we are now trying to bring it this year to a different public housing site in South Los Angeles. Great. In terms of keeping the sustainability of it. Mm-hmm. So something that I also noticed is service providers come and just do a program and they go away. You know, they kind of give you a little glimpse of something like robotics or whatever, and then they're gone. So there's right. no sustainability of it. So that's a key component to keep the younger people exposed to what's out there, to try and get out of that system, leave public housing, because something else that I noticed was that people have been living in public housing for 20, 30 years. You know, you come in as a 20, 30-year-old and now you're 50, 60. Um, that's supposed to be a pit stop, right? I mean, that's supposed to be not a permanent thing. So how do you kind of break that a little bit? So that's one. A second one was we identified this funding stream. I don't know if you've heard of it. There was a, a, a judgment, a settlement, however you want to call it, uh, for lead-based paint abatements. And we're trying to create a workforce development initiative in the construction industry because there seems to be like this lack of construction workers. And when you talk about affordable housing, yeah, we can't find workers. Um, so how do we kind of create some workforce development and plug a need? Seemed like a, a good alignment. And we got aligned with one of the other agencies and got a training program Um that happened, I want to say, like August, September, really trying to create a cohort of uh, individuals who could then work on this particular site site. It didn't quite work that way um, because the houses that needed to be remediated didn't come online at the same time, so mm. it didn't converge. So so we've been trying to find them work outside. Okay. Some people, you know, they go to the course. So this is, these are some of the complexities, right? Like mm-hmm. you you think, okay, yeah, like pr- giving you this, but then somebody would do the course and it was like 4,000 some odd dollars per person that mm. one of our county agencies were helping with the funding on that piece. And they're like, well, we don't want to really do it anymore. You know, mm. so there's all, all of that that needs right. to be navigated and and we all go through that, right? Like we do something and we're like, no, like I don't think I want to do that anymore, you know. So it's sure. it's fair, um, and we expected some of that because we had been advised that, that could happen. So that's another sort of workforce piece uh-huh. um, that I'm working and tracking to make sure that whoever is interested in this can get work, you know, mm-hmm. and get training, at least a year's worth of work, you know, under their belt, and then right. hopefully lead to something else. Mm-hmm. So those are two key ones. There are all these little other ones that I'm not going to talk about. And the third one, of course, is this pilot project to fast-track housing supplies. So this was pitched end of 2018. So all of 2019, we were just doing sort of the development work on it and the planning. So it was basically the pitch was let's use our land, land that is owned by this agency, and test some new methodologies and technology that is not being leveraged um, to kind of bring the time and cost down 
So the executive director at the time, she resigned end of last year. Um, she, you know, was very excited about it. So we worked on it. We identified the land, brought in key stakeholders to the table very early on, like our county partners, DPW, Public wow. Works, Regional mm-hmm. Planning, Fire. Um, they're all sort of committed to the project to get it, get some of these newer methodologies permitted and wow. entitled. Um, so went through an RFP process. We managed to, I didn't convene three different panels, uh, identify two teams right at the end of last year. So we, we wanted to test the tiny homes because we don't have tiny homes here in LA. And we wanted to do like a 3D printed uh, unit and then also look at a, a prefab modular unit, whether that could be brought uh, down in price. Mm. Because even a container is, is penciling out at, I don't know, four fifty five six hundred thousand dollars $600,000 sometimes on the affordable housing side. A container might not go that high, but it's in the four fifty range. So that's the test. It's more like a research project. Let's see if we can do this. Um, so very strategic about the outcomes that we're looking for. Interesting. So the outcomes are basically trying to understand what the costs associated with some of these technologies are, basically? Basically, can these technologies help us to bring a, a the bring the price down of a unit? Mm-hmm. Like, let's say, Harvard. You know, can we do it? Mm-hmm. Um, and can we do turn these out in a twelve month period? Right. And the fact that we are working with our county partners, we could sort sort of fast track uh, housing in this affordable uh, housing space. That's really interesting. So would the intention be that there would be multiple ones of those on a site? Yeah. Um, so the site currently has three parcels. So we're going to test one prototype on each of the parcels. Oh, cool. So what phase is that project in? So um, we've identified the teams as of the end of last year. And the next is for us to go to the board and present a, a motion that we'd like to, that these are the teams we're recommending and we would like to start a negotiating process with them. So that's like the next milestone in this. But a few things need to be sorted internally. We are working on right now. Wow, that's pretty exciting. Everybody says that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I feel like the industry is really on board because several of the panelists were from the architecture and engineering industry and the affordable housing space. And they'll also be part of this advisory committee, just informing the project, bringing their sort of deep domain, um, knowledge sharing, all of that, which is really, I'm really grateful for their support in this. It's kind of incredible that that's like just one of many projects to have under your wing. <laughs> yes, it's um, currently kind of the trickiest mm-hmm. <laughs> because the agency has not done this before and we've had a change in leadership. So having to navigate all of that and uh, still keep the project on track and keep going. Well, it's really encouraging that you're doing that kind of work. I imagine it's um, it must be different too when you're talking to people in the building industry versus people um, in the housing department mm-hmm. who aren't architects or engineers. Right. Um, explaining the project and and the the merits of it. (laughs) Yeah, and the day-to-day folks from the two agencies have been incredibly supportive. I mean, really, without their kind of advice and guidance, 
um, it would have been impossible to get it to this stage even. So having that buy-in very early on and having them as part of your team very early on without just sort of saying we are doing this and so now just approve it, <laughs> you know, um, helping us really figure it out is, has been invaluable. And it's, that's the model that if nothing else has come out of this, that that level of collaboration is needed. Mm-hmm. So perhaps uh, a unit, a collaborative unit between the agencies might be something that we can think of for the future. I don't know. I mean, I would kind of present that as something that this agency should consider. Yeah. Like this co-located space or something that all of the team members are in one place. Because that's one of the, the things that I keep hearing from our industry. You know, they go from one place to another place and then this person's left or retired or you're speaking some years and you're regurgitating the entire process all over again and right it takes a lot of time so if there is a concerted group of people or a concentrated focus on collaboration and trying to sort of fast track some of this stuff that would be pretty good i think yeah, especially when you're trying to do something where there are no rules set yet. Right. Um, I can't even imagine just like dealing with, you know, the building department and going and getting all the approvals for a normal project is hard enough. <laughs> so I'm not going to be doing that. So the teams are selected have sure. to do that. But obviously, we are partnering with them. So yes. we are helping open those doors for them. And they don't have to go through the the normal channels of trying to to create something new, which I don't think would have happened from the outside. Right, right. Yeah, I interviewed actually Deborah Weintraub. You ah, mentioned her earlier. Yeah. And um, right. yeah, she was talking about the impact that she's able to make in her role mm. just through writing an RFP, for example, which I imagine is what you're getting experience yep. doing. Yeah, I mean, I've responded to RFPs and written proposals in my previous right jobs and stuff so it comes easily um but yes i had to use their baseline template and then you know put in all the requirements and the areas the priority areas we want to look at in this sustainability is one um this project so yeah like really getting the text right to draw the potential respondents you know to the rfp Mm -hmm. sometimes the RIPs have like five, seven people, you know, and it's is that, not enough. Okay. No, I was going to say, is that good or bad? <laughs> I, I would say that's not very good. I mean, it's not a lot of competition. And we had like 60 people in the room at the pre-proposal meeting, 60 plus. And then they teamed up because this is specifically kind of teaming up with um, specific uh, expertise, so contract architect and the technology. So it had come up as like a mm-hmm. solid team. Uh, so they teamed up and we had something like 23 proposals, you know. That was, I think, a pretty good turnout. I'm told it's a pretty good turnout. So It sounds like it. I don't know. Like, I don't have a benchmark, you know. <laughs> I think of competitions that we apply to, like, as, at an industry level, and I think there must be hundreds who respond oh, to wow. this, right? I definitely don't <laughs> have a benchmark. <laughs> I only know I I um, went to a pre-conference once myself for mm. a um, on-call list for the housing mm. department there, and mm. I think I was one of 10 people in the room. Oh, see, that's what I mean, yeah. But it really, and I don't know how many people actually ended up bidding. Right, so that's what they're saying, like 
23 was like yes. really good response. That's exciting. Yeah, it's <laughs> been exciting. Um, challenging, but exciting too. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully comes to fruition. So one of the reasons that I really wanted to speak with you um, is that you were president of AWA Plus D from 2015 to 16. Right. And I'm just, you know, maybe past my first quarter mm-hmm. mark mm-hmm. of um, being in that role. And for me, I can already tell it's one of those experiences that's really going to change me and impact my life in a great way. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk about your experience and um, how it's impacted you. Sure. Yeah. So as I mentioned, even Deborah, right? I mean, like this connection that brought me here was through the AW Plus D. I don't think our paths would have crossed. I mean, I would have known of her, but to actually have access to her, um, I don't know that that would have happened without having the AWA Plus D as a platform that helps us to do that. Many connections have been made. Um, as you know, the 5050 uh, was conceived during my term. Um, I was taking a few people. We had this strategic thinking committee. I was taking them through a strategic thinking exercise. So this was 2015. What would we as women want the profession to look like in 2020. So that was kind of the genesis for the 50-50 by 2020. Um, So that was birthed. And even as of today, I think it has value in terms of what it surfaced and where the needs are. And people keep talking about the profession over and over again. Oh, you know, it's changing. It's this, it's that. It's It's gonna go away one day. So I think that year was really important for me in terms of making some really valuable connections within the industry. A lot of my panelists I got to know initially from there. Um, like Helena Jabani was on the panel and I think I met her there and then she's also a teacher at Woodbury. I can't like put a value on what those connections mean, you know, to draw from. So I would encourage any emerging professional, mid-career professional to really plug in because to build those relationships take a long time. And when the need is there, that's not when you have to build a relationship. You have to already have had that. Mm -hmm. So it's very critical, I think, to meet people, go to these events that the AWA Plus D hosts. You might need to go to three or four of them before they remember you, you know, and and really building on those relationships, I think, is like paramount for success. I'm still connected to it just because of those things, you know. Plus, I enjoy the the friendships that I've made, like Anna and Nina, Stephanie. They're just they're not connections anymore. They're like friends, you know. Right. It's one of those few, um, for me, professional groups where it does really feel like a friendship and a. Right community, not just a networking thing. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I think it's also safe, you know, um, people are candid about how you can approach some things. There's a lot of value in that knowledge with the portfolio reviews, the mentorship. You really do see how people have gone before us like to invest in sort of some of the younger professionals. Yeah, I definitely feel like I've benefited from that, just a sense, an innate sort of feeling that a lot of our members have 
to help guide someone when they need it or just give support to someone right. when they right. seem like they need it. Right. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm keep going back to Deborah, you know, like I had met her, I met her, I met her, but I didn't have her card. I was really impressed by some of her stories, you know, I mean, she's got some amazing stories. And I think I asked Stephanie, like, can you connect me? So she gave me an email address and I kind of wrote to her and then, you know, had a coffee with her and then she introduced me to Fuse and all this stuff. So don't know if I could have done that without AWA plus D. Yeah, I mean, I never even heard about Fuse until I looked into what you're doing. <laughs> and it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a good way of people wanting to kind of work on some of these challenging issues to connect with government. Yeah, that's a key piece. A very, very vital piece to progress. Right. Well, you had kind of mentioned the 50-50 initiative. Can you explain a little more uh, for people who don't know mm -hmm. um, what that is and um, where you are in that now that it's 2020? Yeah, so um, 10 firms periodically through, I think even as of 2018, joined uh, the, the initiative. It was conceived to see if we can get firms to really make a commitment to um, bringing equity to practice, um, so a 50 male to 50 female ratio within their firms in a five-year period, which ended in 2020, mm -hmm. which ends in 2020, I should say. So um, it has been, um, what shall I say, interesting. There's several lessons learned. There is a f sort of a framework that has surfaced in terms of what the key pieces have to be if we are going to impact the industry, the profession as women. Um, so there's a level of ownership that we need to take as well, mm. primarily being like licensure. You know, mm -hmm. it's something that I didn't do and I wish I had done. So I think that's a key piece. I would have liked more firms to come on board. The AI having endorsed this very early on uh, was really helpful. And some of the firms who joined, so for example, EYRC, um, like stood with me, you know, alongside me at that very first powerful and pitch day. Wow. You know, so just sort of having that support. She's going to be one of our facilitators at the A20 as well. And um, this is Patty. Um, and Perkins and Will did the same. Um, and then Deborah, Jared from Gruen. She was, I think, the, the president of the AIA at the time and help, uh, helped us get that endorsement. Um, so having done all of that, I feel like more firms could have come on board. And we reached out to a few who, who felt that it wasn't for them hmm. um, for whatever reason or they already had that as part of their diversity and inclusion work they were doing. So anyway, um, I think at the end of this year, we would have something that we can share with the rest of the, the industry. Mm -hmm. as something to take on board, uh, hopefully a toolbox. And Deborah is doing this work too at the city. She's involved with the mayor's office on this. And oh, she's wow. made a ton of progress. She's not part of the 50-50, but because of what she's been doing in this regard, um, I asked her to be a part of our, 
our panel as well. So she's part of that panel as well. That's great. Mm. Well, I mean, she's the first um, female chief engineer. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Head of the uh, public right. works. Yeah, exactly. For the city, you know, mm-hmm. or, the, or yeah, in government or something. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. What do you think were the biggest uh, challenges that firms faced and were you surprised by any of the outcomes that you've seen so far? Not totally surprised. I think I was kind of expecting this this sort of drop off, these pinch points as they refer to them. You know, you become a mom um, or you get married and you become a mom or you don't want to get married and you become a mom or whatever the reason or you're looking after an elderly parent um, and you drop off that career path and then some people springboard to do other things um, especially if there's a recession you try to you know reinvent yourself a little bit but then if somebody really wants to come back it's, it's hard for them to come back so I kind of knew that right like you know that people right. the women are dropping off that's why there's that's why there's a 50 50 try and get them up so um it was interesting to see some of the firms and how how they're tackling that particular aspect. And also like some firms would agree, some firms wouldn't agree to that particular way of doing it for whatever reason. So that was interesting. The firms really have to look at your talent pipeline. Um, This was always framed as non-discriminatory, right? Like we want pushback from, from men, for example, saying, okay, so, you know, what about merit? What about talent? It was always framed in terms of, meritocracy right on the premise that there are equally talented equally talented right and then the equity piece means you also give um an opportunity an extra extra sort of hand up right um that's where the equity versus equality comes into play um so really looking at the talent pipeline and just kind of looking at how that works in terms of your firm structure Right. And then really putting women in place in leadership roles. Right. Um, allowing that space for people to, for women to grow into leadership positions is key. Right. Um, so talent leadership or licensure, as I mentioned, and then this re-entry piece. So those are like the four pieces. We like to look at it through a two by two matrix as business people like to do. I don't know what that that means. Never mind. Uh, I have to put it into one of those. um, Yeah, so like like a framework, you know? A two by two matrix. I'm going to look it up. I want to know what business people think. (laughs) Yeah, they're like four quadrants, um, kind of sort of. I mean, when you think about five years, it's not that long. Exactly. But it's it's gone by. I mean, I can still remember us meeting on a Saturday, like three or four of us going through this strategic thinking piece and like thinking, is this something we should kick off? And and the first powerful, you know, we've had like seven now or something because the first year had two, I think one in February and one in October. So looking at it in, in those terms, it doesn't seem that long ago, you know, but here we are. But here we are. Five years doesn't seem like a long time, but it also, a lot can happen at the same time. A lot can happen. It's it's impossible, really, when you think of uncertainty and complexity, 
it's difficult to plan now for a tenure. You should, you should vision it out, but don't expect it to pan out exactly as you <laughs> envisioned it. Right. So I think a five-year period was palatable for a lot of people to commit to because we put an MOU together. We made it so really like you're signing on the dotted line. You know, you're not getting it penalized or anything like that, <laughs> but you're actually signing and making it official that you're going to really promote this. You know, so we made it really official at this MOU in place and everything. So, it, you know, committing to a five-year versus committing to 10 years seemed easier for the firms as well. Yeah. So we'll see how the data stacks now. That's great. I'm I'm hoping to see that um, not just with new hires, but in leadership roles, that the numbers have become more equal as well there. I don't know if it's equal, but definitely I think the needle has moved in certain firms. We always said, you know, 50-50, but as close to that as possible. It's a win for us. You know, you're 30 and you've now gone up to 40. That's a win. So you can't, that's like a fail safe in this, right? Like as long as you make progress. Some firms have found it harder than others um, to push that a little bit. And we have a, a really kind of cool snapshot, you know, from very tiny to pretty kind of large firms. So if in architecture speak, um, 40 is considered a large firm, right? Yeah, sure. So, um, like the Perkins and Wills and so on. But um, and, and I don't know, one or two may drop off. Like we haven't got data from a firm or two. Uh, so out of the 10, at the end of the day, we may have eight or nine. So we'll see. So you're going to be presenting that um, at the AIA, the 2020 conference in May. Yeah. And also we're going to have a party <laughs> to <right>. celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a great accomplishment to have even thought up and followed through on that project. Um I can't imagine how exciting it would have been to be part of that visioning mm. session. As you know, and as I'm learning, the president role uh, really is supposed to be someone with vision. And I see all of the roles you've had in your life, and it seems like you have no lack of that. <laughs> <laughs> maybe too much, right? I need to rein some of that in, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But, I mean, I really admire your spirit to think about, okay, these are some big issues. What are the things that I and we, because you you're not tackling them alone. Mm -hmm. um, it's impossible. Exactly. Just hubris to think one person could do this, I don't, anything like this, you know? But that's, yeah, I admire that very much, that, that you have that vision and you're able to pull a group together and follow through on Thank ideas. You. Doesn't I mean it looks easy, right? Like five years on, yeah, like we've got these <laughs> nice images and visualizations, and but yeah, that consistency, you know, it could have easily like could have, I could have easily walked away from it and said like I don't have a team half the time. Like there's nobody. Like we tried to create a team for this, and like you just mentioned, like somebody would be interested, and then like two months later, it's not so. I was very lucky to find somebody who could help me with the data. She moved to Boston, but um, she's still connected, and actually her husband helps. Well, I can't wait to see it. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> I hope we have the outcomes we're looking for, you know? I really do. I really hope. Um, but as I said, if, if somebody's got, you know, 
a 10% increase, I think. Yeah, absolutely. That's a win. I mean, at the very basic level, just talking about it is yeah. a win. Just acknowledging that that's a problem is a win. Um, sadly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so having somebody sign on a dotted line saying that they're going to commit to it and then moving the needle, that's huge. I guess it is. <laughs> Do quite look at it. I mean, I don't sit down and like, you know, ponder about it. But I guess it is. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that you've done it. And that's our show. I'm your host, Audrey Sato, and today's guest was Kashani De Silva. If you want to attend the 5050 by 2020 celebration, you can RSVP on the events page of awaplusd.org. Or you can find me online at xx-la.com, and I'll provide links to all the events I've mentioned. You can also follow me on social media at XXLA Podcast. And if you go online, you can sign up for my email newsletter, which will make things even easier for you, since I'll email you with new episode notifications, which include links and event information. Thanks for listening.